we're excited to be in the month of May, and this is the kind of the first month that we're doing this hybrid model of being all together twice a month and in various neighborhood gatherings uh, twice a month. And so next Sunday we'll be gathering small again. And part of the reason we're doing this is just to, to build relationship and to kind of go deeper. We really feel like to fulfill the one another's, we have to be in smaller gatherings. Uh, this is good what we're doing today. We believe in the word of God. We believe in corporate worship and celebration. It's good. It builds us up. God has given teachers and preachers to the body of Christ to build up the saints, and that's what I'm going to be doing this morning. So there's a place for that, but we're really excited about the smaller, uh, these smaller expressions. So if you're brand new to us and you're like, what, are, what is he talking about? Go to the website. There's a lot of uh, information on the website about what we're doing these days. But if you come next Sunday, some of us will be here. Nobody will be upstairs where you guys are right now. But uh, I came to the South Side location last Sunday and it was about 30 people uh, that met downstairs in the cafe. Beautiful spirit. Part of the... The, the, the part of the aim for these smaller gatherings also is to have the children with us as much as possible and to get them involved. And uh, I mean, there was just this cool moment that happened. I think the question was, Chioma was uh, kind of leading and speaking, kind of giving the biblical story. And one of the questions she posed was, can anybody think of something, this is the creation story, uh, you know, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, you know, kind of talking about the, how God breathed life into human beings. But the question was, can you think of anything that doesn't have life, but then you do something to it and suddenly it comes alive? And all of all the adults are just like, hmm, I don't know, I can't think of anything. And uh, little Micah, I don't know how old he is, like seven or eight or something like that, just raises his hand. It's kind of like my robot when it doesn't have any batteries in it. And I put batteries in it and it just comes alive. <laughs> it's like, yes. And this is why we have children with us in the gathering. And it was a, such a cool moment when, uh, yeah, the whole place was kind of schooled by a child. It was, it was just a beautiful, beautiful moment. So anyways, uh, if you're wondering what you're going to do next Sunday, come talk to us after service. We have these small communities in all different locations, one in Cranston, one in East Providence. There's two in the city, one on the east side and one right here. There's one uh, way out in Warwick, it's like, I think, 12 minutes away, actually, 15 minutes away. That's way too far, I know, for some. But So five different locations. So the idea is to kind of go to the one that's close to you. You don't have to, but you can go to any of them. You can try them all out. But that's where we'll be next Sunday. And we'll keep reminding you of that. All right, well, today, if you can remember, you've been a part of this church for a while, and you remember way back when we were going through the book of Acts. 
So we are going to today resume our series on the book of Acts, which I'm really excited about. And so we've gone all the way up through uh, chapter 17, so we'll be looking at chapter 18 today. And the title of this message is The Work of the Ministry. The Work of the Ministry. And if your first thought is, oh, well, I'm not called to the ministry, to the work of the ministry, I hope by the end of this message you will change your way of thinking about that and realize that all followers of Jesus are called to the work of the ministry. Now, we aren't all called to quit our day jobs and go to the ends of the earth, right? But we are called to do the work of the ministry in a similar way to Paul that we read about a lot in the book of Acts and others that we read about in the New Testament. But each of us is called to make disciples, to preach the gospel, to rescue the perishing, to restore the fallen, to be salt and light. We're called to go into the highways and byways and compel people to come into God's banquet. We're called to be prepared to give an answer when somebody asks us about the hope that lies within us. We're all called to be disciples who make disciples. A Christian life devoid of the work of the ministry misses the mark entirely. Can I get an amen there? That's right, Pastor Scott. Because it's not just about us, it's not just about our spiritual life, It's not just about our little bubble of Christianity and we have our little friend, Jesus, and that's all. No, he calls us to do something once we are in the family. And that is the work of the ministry. And I think you'll see uh, today that the work of the ministry takes on a lot of different forms. It's not just like I'm, right now I'm doing the work of the ministry. This is part of it, right? The, the preaching of the word. And, but not everybody's called to, to do this. Um, but as we go through this chapter, I want you to pay attention to the kinds of ministry work being done. And I want you to consider the ministry work that you might be called to and maybe the specific people that you might be called to serve in this season. And it will be different for each of us. All right, let's go through it. So Acts chapter 18, we're just gonna go a few verses at a time and I'll make some comments. So the first uh, few verses say this, verse one. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth Verse 2, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. Paul went to see this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with Aquila and Priscilla and worked for they were tent makers by trade. Paul was a tent maker. Aquila and Priscilla were tent makers. So in these verses, Paul is coming to a new place, the city of Corinth, a fairly large 
kind of crazy Greek city known for its sinfulness, honestly. But it may have been that when Paul landed in Corinth, he started looking for work and came upon Aquila, who also made tents. It may have been a God orchestration that Aquila was a Jewish believer and a tent maker just like Paul, and also generous enough to let Paul stay with him and his wife and to work with them. And I think it's a reminder of how the Lord often goes before us in our mission efforts. It would be easy for Paul to worry about how he would live in Corinth. How would he eat? Where would he live? But God took care of everything by providing a wonderful, godly Italian couple that provided housing and work for Paul. The Lord may call us at times to step into something that seems financially uncertain. It might be a ministry, it might be the mission field, it could even be a particular career slash mission thing that you feel God is wanting you to do, and you're like, ah, how is this going to work financially? But I really feel God moving me to do it. We might worry about how, how we're going to provide But let's remember that God goes before us and makes preparations for his workers in advance. Paul said to the Corinthians in a letter, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? When we get an assignment from the Lord, we can be certain that if we obey his call, he will provide for us even better than the government provides for its soldiers. It doesn't mean we'll be wealthy. There's no promise of great wealth for Christian workers. Uh, It doesn't mean life will be free of trouble. But where God guides, God provides, as the saying goes, right? May we never refrain from God's will because of fear that we will not be able to provide for ourselves. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 6, 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. You know, they're not storing up a bunch of stuff. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. And Jesus said, are you not of more value than they? Yes, absolutely. Well, let's look at a couple more verses. Verse four. And he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was, I love this phrase, occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. In these verses, we see Paul occupied with the word. It just means he was busy studying and preaching and teaching the word of God. This is the most important part of ministry work, right? I mean, there's a time to uh, heal the sick or to build houses or to feed the hungry or to do kind of practical, tangible things. And we do that as a church. We've done that for two decades. We've done a lot of practical, uh, you know, meeting practical, physical needs in the people uh, that we've been surrounded by. 
But good works alone don't transform hearts, right? They need to be coupled with the preaching of the word. Only the word changes us. So Paul was working hard to persuade the Jews and Greeks using the scriptures that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Now, Paul was essentially one of the Jews, wasn't he? Philippians 3.5 says he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was even a Pharisee, a leader. And so he sort of leaned into his Jewishness to reach the Jews. He knew how to speak the language, how to dress the part. But the difference between Jews and Christians was and still is significant. There's a lot in common, of course. You know, Christianity is not a new religion. It's more of a fulfillment of the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't contradict anything in the Old Testament. It just completes it. But there's a big difference. The Jews were still waiting for the Messiah, the promised Savior. The Christians, however, believed the Messiah had already come. Christians believed Jesus of Nazareth was the God-man who came into the world to redeem the world through his death on the cross and then was resurrected from the dead and ascended back to glory. Paul used reason to persuade the Jews using their own scriptures. Paul didn't just go in with a simplistic message like, you need to believe this, Jesus is Lord, just you know, kind of stuff it upon them and, and, and just kind of force it. No, he, he kind of carefully and thoughtfully, intelligently went through their own scriptures and showed them how Jesus fulfilled perfectly what scripture says about the Messiah. Now in the year 2023, in American culture, it's become frowned upon, to say it lightly, for Christians to attempt to persuade Jews or really any person of another religion out of what they believe and into Christian doctrine, right? How many can feel that in our culture, especially in a city like Providence? It's considered offensive and rude. But this is precisely what Paul did. He said in one of his letters, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I think this means that Paul had such a clear, vivid vision of the coming judgment of God that everyone is going to stand before the judgment of God that Paul was moved, compelled by love to get people ready to call them to flee from the wrath of God. To persuade, though, is to argue, isn't it? It's to dismantle the beliefs of a person using reason. And it can be offensive. It often is offensive, but it's not rude. I think rude is the wrong word. 
we compel people, we persuade people, it does offend them, but it is not rude, it is, it is, it is love, always, to tell the truth. We have to ask ourselves the question, is this person that I know, maybe it's a cousin, maybe it's a brother or sibling, whatever, it's a parent, it's a friend, coworker, you know, is this person believing things that will eventually land them in a place of confusion or shipwreck or fruitlessness or bondage to sin or isolation or the fearful discipline of the Lord or ultimately a separation, an eternal separation from God? Well, if we see a person heading in that trajectory, is it loving to say nothing? Just let them walk off the cliff? No, the most loving thing we can do is try our best to redirect a person. Consider how Paul encourages young Timothy to deal with people who have fallen into error. This is 2 Timothy 2. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Do you see the balance there? Not quarrelsome, not unkind, not abrasive, not insensitive, and yet correcting, speaking, persuading, challenging. This makes me think of the author and pastor, Tim Keller, who passed away this week. I don't know if you heard that. Um, you know, when we have people fill out the, the membership forms for this church, one of the questions is, what is your what are some of your favorite authors? And the most common favorite author in this church community is Tim Keller. And I think second, C.S. Lewis. But Tim Keller is a pastor, was a pastor in New York City, just passed away this week. What a great man of God. But he modeled this so wonderfully because he was, he could argue, he was so persuasive and yet he was so gentle. Uh, never quarrelsome, always so respectful of people who disagreed with him. In fact, you, you might even see out there on the, on the internet, I've watched different uh, videos, kind of video teachings of him. There's one series where he just tackled some of the most difficult objections to the Christian faith. And he's sitting in a circle, I think there was a couple Christians in the circle and, and several non-Christians, unchurched people who had big questions. And just watching Pastor Keller interact with people who sharply, dramatically disagreed with him was just, I learned so much just from, from watching that. But it can be done, you know? So don't, don't let anybody tell you, no, if you... Uh, if you're trying to persuade somebody, you know, you're a jerk, you're a terrible person. That's not true. You know, we love people. Uh, I, most of the Christians I know are loving and they just want other people to know the joy of knowing Christ. And so it's not, it's not a rude thing. Yes, it can be offensive. I was offended when the gospel first came to me, <laughs> when my loving friends started to persuade me and break my arguments down. I was not like, oh, thank you so much for coming. Would you come back tomorrow? 
I'll make coffee for you guys. Like, it wasn't like that. It was like, yeah, I hate you guys. You guys are jerks. You're terrible human beings. I didn't say that to their faces. I just waited till they left, and I told my housemates that. I'm serious. But, you know, over time, I kind of realized they, they actually aren't rude. They, they have my best interest in mind. They love me. All right, next verse. Verse six, when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood, this is where uh, the written word, how do you, what's the tone here? Your blood be on your own heads, jerks. <laughs> I don't know. He just says, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. I don't know what his tone was when he said that. But before you think that Paul was just in a bad mood here, it's important to know that this idea comes straight from Jesus, right? The perfect, loving, compassionate Christ. When Jesus was sending his disciples out two by two to different towns, he said this, whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace return to you. Or if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. If it is worthy, let your peace come upon it. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Whoa, gentle Jesus. The reality is that even if we persuade well not everyone will receive our persuasions, right? What causes people to reject is not always a lack of persuasiveness, but it's a stubborn refusal to humble oneself, to acknowledge the truth, and to turn from sin. You know, sometimes we think, you know, come down hard on ourselves. If someone rejects the gospel, it's because they just didn't understand it, or it's because I didn't do a good enough job explaining it. Uh, I, need, you know, I, I need to learn more. I need to be more articulate with these things. But sometimes they do understand perfectly and they choose not to accept it. Right. They don't want to be ruled by God. Right. This is human nature, really. They want to be their own ruler. And this is where serious opposition and reviling can arise. When we proclaim Jesus as the way and the truth, and the life, we will sometimes be met with fierce resistance. It's just, it's part of the call. And even as persuasive as Paul was, and Jesus, uh, they were rejected at times by many, by many. So Paul here, he shook out the dust of his garments against them. Now, does it mean that he gave up on them? Not, no. I mean, if one of, if he shook the dust up, but then one in the crowd came and visited him the next day, Paul wouldn't be like, I already shut the, you know, shut the door on you. I already shook the dust again. No, it's just that it was a decision to not make effort to try to reach them, at least for now. <clears throat> so when people hear the gospel in clarity and decide not to obey, the scriptures teach that it's kind of unwise to keep 
badgering them when so many other people are out there who are ripe and ready. Now, this kind of goes against it because we feel like we never give up on anybody. We love everybody. We should. But there, there's some wisdom in this. This is the teaching of Jesus who said, uh, don't cast your pearls to swine, right? It almost sounds cold. But consider how Jesus did not usually invest in people who had wrong motives or mixed motives. Some just wanted to test Jesus. You don't see him like hanging out for the weekend with, with those kind of individuals. He, he just doesn't. He just moves on. He shoots back a question to them, gives them about 17 seconds, and then walks away, right? And he, and he invests in those who are hungry, the broken, the poor, those who are wide open to the kingdom of God. And I, you know, I think if, if Jesus did that, then, then we should do that as well. Again, we're, it doesn't mean be unloving. It doesn't mean be unkind. We love everybody. We should be uh, kind and friendly to everyone. But we're talking about who should you pour your life into and invest in. Invest in the ripe like Jesus did. Verse 7, he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, who's described as a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Now, Paul goes in search, as all good missionaries do, of people who are open. And this led him to this dude named Titius, who is described as a worshiper of God. It's kind of a general term. He wasn't like a Jewish, uh, committed, devoted Jewish man. He was just this worshiper of God or God-fearer. The guy lived right next to the synagogue, so probably had frequent interaction, maybe conversations, dialogue with Jews. He was a Grecian man who believed in God and even seemed to like worship God or have some sort of honor toward God. It reminds me of Cornelius, right, who, whose alms and prayers came up as a memorial before God, and yet he was just, uh, what? Gentile. He wasn't a Jew but he had some kind of relationship with God happening. Titus represents a lot of people in our society today who aren't religious, or maybe they say, oh, I'm spiritual but not religious, right? They don't affiliate with a church or relig religious organization. They don't have even a particular worldview. It's kind of very fluid. Um, it's very, very kind of loose, abstract. They may live near a church, but they, they don't attend a church they believe in God in general. They might even express an honor, a degree of honor toward God or gratitude toward God. They're the kind of person that maybe at Thanksgiving, they'll, they'll say a prayer to God. And, and it's sort of genuine. Like they kind of, I'm not saying they're like born again, but I'm just saying that there's something at work in them. They have a respect for the creator of the universe and they're thankful. Many of the folks devoted to AA or N.A. kind of fall into this category. I mean, some are full-on Christians, but a lot of them are just like, eh, I'm not really exactly sure who God is, but uh, you know, I believe he's there. I need him. Uh, uh, I'm asking for his help. They, they even talk to, to this kind of general God at times. A lot of people fall into that category. And that was Titius. Um, wanted to know God. And so maybe you can think of some people in your life in your circles of 
relationship who are kind of like Titius. Verse 8 says this, Crispus is another, just kind of introduces these different characters. Crispus, cool name, the ruler of the synagogue, big position, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Now, it doesn't just mean he believed in the Lord, the Jewish God. It means like he became a follower of Jesus. It's kind of a radical thing. And he did it with his whole household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. In this verse, (coughs) we hear about this guy, Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue. And it's safe to assume he was a man of much influence. This man believed in the Lord. His whole household was saved. Household included like all the family members, all the hired servants. It could have been quite a great number of people. And he had such persuasion, influence over all all that were under him that a lot of people uh, followed him and came to Christ. So often mission work, God opens the door to connect us to a person who is known in the community as a leader. Think about your circles, okay? At school, at Brown University, in your high school, in your workplace, even in your family. There's always like key people, right? I don't know, sometimes that's how my mind is wired. Sometimes I always think, oh man, if that guy came to the Lord and had a dramatic conversion, it would like rock the art world in Providence. It would just like, people, it would just baffle people. Like, it's just fun to think about those people and put them on your prayer list. But that's kind of what we're talking about here. That's who Crispus was. He was a key influencer. And so God often moves in people like that who have a lot of influence within a community. Uh, we, another term that Jesus used was person of peace. Just a person who receives the word of God, but they also have a lot of relationship and credibility within the mission field that you're trying to reach. It's a powerful thing. You can come in and speak to 150 people and they don't know who you are. You're a stranger. But if that person of peace comes to the Lord and they turn around and testify about what God has done, there's credibility there. And so this is, this is the way the world works and this is the way the kingdom of God works as well. So maybe you can think of somebody in your life who is like a Crispus. All right, verse nine. Let's look at a couple more verses. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So reading in between the lines, we can guess that Paul was getting some heat from probably from the religious community. Paul was speaking Boldly, but resistance was intense. Uh, maybe Paul started worrying, like, am I going to die here? Am I going to get stoned to death? Am I going to get thrown in prison? Maybe he was even shrinking back a little bit in, in his preaching. It was just, oh, this is getting a little scary. Um, and it's just easy for us to get discouraged in the work of the ministry. 
when people don't respond positively, right? We pray, we fast, we labor for people, but instead of glorious conversions, we seem to be just disturbing the hornet's nest. But in the midst, here's the good news, in the midst of our fear and discouragement, God sends his word. In Paul's case, God tells him, keep speaking, don't be afraid, I am with you. (laughs) This is like the most common encouragement that it seems like we need to hear from God constantly. I mean, it's definitely the most common in scripture thing that God says to his people. And it is the most encouraging thing. Don't be afraid. You know, stop freaking out. Calm down. (laughs) The paraphrase, calm down, I'm with you. Like that's, oh, all right, yeah. Because we just kind of think we're out there alone and there is no sovereign God and he's just, you know, in another place up there. He's busy. But he's with us at all times. And even Paul, the greatest Christian who ever lived, needed to hear that word. The Lord knows our needs when we do his work. So he not only takes care of our physical needs, right? Providing for us and orchestrating things to, to make, you know, make it work for us financial, financially, but he, he speaks a timely word to keep us going when we need it. You know, God is not aloof like a CEO uh, sitting up in a plush office far away with no compassion for his workers. You know, he's not, a, he's not like a mission taskmaster, you know, where every great once in a while he comes around and checks on us and he's like, that's all you got done? Seriously? That's not how this works. I know he's invisible and it's hard for us to grasp, but he goes before us and is behind us and is right with us and he's around us. He's, he's with us at all times. That's why that word is so powerful. He's very aware of our spiritual depletion and affliction. He knows when we're running on fumes and he just has his ways of revitalizing us just when we need it. Well, verse 11 says, says he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. It seems weird to comment on this just as one verse, but I do have something to say about this verse. Paul stayed with them 18 months just teaching the word. Paul was an elder at times, a church planter. He had like different hats, you know, an apostle, an evangelist. Paul was an adventuresome soul who started riots in cities, right? Turned cities upside down. He was a street preacher who landed himself in jail. He was beaten at times. He was flogged, I think, five times. He experienced a lot of persecution. He was sort of a wild man. Like even... Even if Paul, like if Paul lived in our generation and wasn't a Christian at all, like he would be the, like the guy bungee jumping and doing all these crazy things. He'd be traveling all over the world, doing all these different things. It was kind of part of his personality. It was, he was just a, a wild person. But at least for these 18 months, things were pretty steady. We might even say boring. Paul just spent a lot of time with God's people, probably a lot of young converts, just teaching the word of God, answering their questions. He was wearing his pastor hat during this season. 
and probably just taught through entire books of the Bible. And I think this verse is important because it shows that Paul was okay with the mundane routine. Some missionary type people are more interested in traveling the world and doing exciting things than they are about the actual mission of making disciples. Sometimes ministry work is not exciting, but it's just the day-by-day investment in people. I mean, any good missionary will tell you that. There's like a certain, uh, you know, we, we met when we went to Israel recently, we met some of the live-dead missionaries, and they were kind of touching on this, talking about this, how, you know, it's just exciting. Like, I'm going to another country. We're, gonna, we're going to the unreached. It's sort of romantic, right? It's exciting. People are all about it. Like, you know, you just get so much uh, attention and encouragement, but then you're there for a week, for two weeks, for a month, for six months, and like one of the wives was just talking about, she started missing some of the, I think they had like renovated their kitchen back home and she was miss, missing her kitchen. <laughs> you know, th- things like that. Just being in another place and just doing the day-by-day work of serving people and being with people. Uh, some of the romance wears off pretty quick. Um, that's right. But that's part of the kingdom of God. It's part of the cost of being a missionary and doing the work of the ministry. All right, you guys still with me? Yes. You want more? Yes. I could keep going. We'll finish the whole book of Acts today. I got a little bit more here. All right, verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth and defend himself, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names of your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he, Gallio, drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now, one interesting question that you might have, I definitely had, is who's Sothenes? Wait, I thought Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. Now, all of a sudden, Sothenes, a few verses later, is the ruler? What's happening here? Is it the same person? I don't know. Theologians argue about it and have different opinions and stuff. We, this is one of those things we don't really know for sure. But it kind of does make sense because sometimes when a person becomes a follower of Christ, their name was changed, right? Yeah. Simon became Peter. Saul became Paul. Maybe Crispus became Sothenes. Again, I don't know for sure, but it kind of fits. It would certainly make sense that they would beat Sothenes, if he was a Christian, in support of Paul and not cooperating with their desire, desires to like attack Paul, right? It all fits together perfectly. Again, we don't know for sure, but it does make sense that way. These verses show us how persecution can be a display of grace to people. In this case, it's a man named Gallio. He's the Roman ruler over the region, and the Jews are trying to persuade him that Paul should be arrested and punished for his preaching. I'm speculating here, but I think Gallio was watching the whole scene play out. 
right? He saw anger, rage, jealousy, pride in Paul's accusers. But then he saw peace and life upon Paul. So what he saw made him want to protect Paul. And this is why the blood of Christian martyrs always results in an increase of people coming to faith. All right, moving on, verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila, the Italian power duo. At Centuria, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow and they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and here's what I want you to focus on. He reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I, I will return to you. This isn't a shaking the dust off, right? He's like, I will return to you if the Lord wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So we see here Paul again reasoning, persuading the Jews. And you get the impression here that they, they weren't easily persuaded, right? Uh, they did ask Paul to stay for a longer period. So there was kind of a tension there. Like they weren't receiving it fully, but they wanted to know more. And this represents people who are genuinely open and yet genuinely have maybe a lot of processing to do. In order for an established Jew to change his mind or her mind and convert to being a fully devoted follower of Jesus, come on, that's kind of a dramatic change. It's true that sometimes God changes a person suddenly. But in most cases, it takes time to change your mind. That's not usually how God works. If we are ministering to someone who has been steeped in Islam for decades, and let's say all of their family members are Muslim, well, they're not going to quickly depart from that. Someone who has been an agnostic for 40 years, it's going to take some time to process the claims of Jesus. In order for a new house to be built, the old one needs to be dismantled. And this is not easy for people because, you know, maybe it's all they've known. So we need to be patient with people. Give people time. Let people think things through. Give them space and room to process. Just because a person doesn't instantly convert when you share the gospel with them for five minutes, it doesn't mean that they're not genuinely interested. They just may need some more time. So be patient with people. Verse 22, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So Paul strengthened the disciples in this region. It doesn't mean physical strength. He didn't lead a CrossFit class, right? It wasn't that at all. He strengthened them, how? By teaching the word of God. It is the word of God that realigns us, it surges us, adjusts us 
2 Timothy 3 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what the word of God does, and that is exactly how Paul strengthened the churches. One thing that's this is kind of a side note, one thing that's important to understand about the word is that it only has this uh, powerful, positive effect if a person has ears to hear. Did you catch that when Kelly prayed this morning for the word, she said, uh, Lord, give us ears to hear the preaching of the word. It's so important. Jesus used that phrase. It just means that, that we would be open and receive the word of God. God doesn't just force it into us. We actually play a role in opening our hearts. I mean, God opens our hearts, but there's a mystery to that. But we, we let him open our hearts. The person hearing the word preached must receive it with meekness. Just because someone is in the same room where the word is preached is no guarantee that it will even benefit them at all. Um, it could be Francis Chan preaching, who's one of my favorites, or John Piper, or Charles Spurgeon, back from the dead, back from the 1800s, preaching. He's the prince of preachers, greatest preacher ever, maybe. Uh, Paul the Apostle, Jesus himself, preaching the greatest sermon that anyone has ever heard. And somebody can be sitting there and have absolutely can have no effect on them at all. Why? Because they're not opening their ears to hear it. It will actually have a negative effect. It will harden their heart. And we need to understand this because it's a reality that many of the people we try to persuade are not willing to obey. And we might think we just didn't do a good job, but there's a responsibility on the communicator, on the preacher or the teacher, or even just if you're personally sharing the gospel with somebody to be clear and to bold, be bold and be articulate and make it simple enough for people to understand. I think that there's a responsibility on our part to, to be good at that. But there's a huge responsibility on the hearer to be open. All right, verse 24, coming in for a landing here. I think this is my... Almost done here. This is my last section. All right, okay, this is a fun section. You still with me? Yes. You still got enough? You still got an ear to hear left? Okay. <laughs> All right, so verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, yes. though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And I love this part of the story. I picture Aquila and Priscilla as these, you know, little Italian, I don't know why I picture them the same height. This is this little Italian couple. Um, as like established 
seasoned Christians. Um, You don't get the impression that they are dynamic speakers or powerful leader types. They almost seem kind of quiet, right? Like quiet souls. Aquila made tents for a living. They were hospitable. They opened their home to Paul. So in this story, they come across this, I'm not sure if he was young, but I just imagine Apollos as young, this young, fiery preacher, fervent in spirit, named Apollos. I mean, just with a name like Apollos. You know this guy. He was like 300 pounds. He was like a rock. He was like 6'4". He towered over people. He was like just a strong, forceful personality. I'm making most of this up, so don't quote me on this. But he wasn't one to mince words. He was bold. And it does say he was eloquent. It means he had the ability to capture an audience with his speaking abilities. It reminds me of George Whitfield. Maybe you've heard of him. Read it in your U.S. history books of the 1700s. He was such a rock star preacher in early America. It was said of Whitfield, I have this quote, in the fading light of a cool autumn evening, 25-year-old evangelist George Whitfield ascended a platform on Boston Common on October 12, 1740. And before him stood, think about this, this is before speakers and mic sound systems, before him stood 20,000 people. If the crowd estimates were reasonably accurate, this was the largest assembly ever gathered in the history of the American colonies. And this guy would just capture people's attention, making people laugh, making people cry. He would cry. I mean, he was just an incredible, gifted communicator. And Apollos possessed a similar God-given talent for public speaking. So when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they were definitely impressed by his speaking, but realized his content needed development. It wasn't that Apollos was saying anything wrong, but it was just incomplete. Apollos knew only the baptism of John. He was also from Alexandria. He might, maybe he didn't even know about that, that Jesus died and that, that he was risen from the dead. We're not even exactly sure, but I mean, he was probably preaching repentance like a prophet, like Isaiah, like John the Baptist. He was preaching the baptism of John. We aren't exactly sure, but it's clear that whatever he was preaching was incomplete. Aquila and Priscilla discern the potential of Apollos. I think they just liked this guy. They see his God-given gift to preach. They see his heart to reach people. So after hearing Apollos preach, they, it says they took him aside. And I take this to mean that they didn't correct Apollos publicly. They didn't embarrass him. They pulled him aside privately and like gentle parents helped him to develop a more robust theology. It says they explained to him the way of God more accurately. This is a beautiful example of the older teaching the younger. And I want you to really hear me with this last point here. Apollos had the humility, didn't he, to realize that this older couple had much to offer him. I mean, he could have easily been arrogant, right? Like, who are these, like, Italian people? What, I don't even know. What kind of crowds are they drawing? He could have thought to himself. I mean, God is clearly using me more than them. Look at the impact I'm making. I don't need their help. But instead, he recognized this quiet, older couple was the provision of God to move him from good to great. 
And I want to ask this question. Who do you identify with in this story? Are you Apollos? Uh, Gifted, educated, dynamic, successful? Or are you the quiet Aquila or Priscilla? If you are an Apollos, my encouragement to you is to not be arrogant or unteachable. God will put older saints in your life to teach you. They may not be as talented as you or as smart or as successful, but they have much to teach you. Be humble and receive from them. It's actually a sad quality, isn't it, of this generation in America that we don't respect and honor and value older people. We view them as out of touch, you know, dinosaurs going extinct. They just don't get it. We're the new breed. Like, we know what we're doing. We're the Christ followers, and we know how to reach this young generation. And while that may be partially true, okay, that maybe we have some wisdom on how to reach the younger, whatever, uh, there's a lot to be learned, listen to me, from older saints about doubt, about being faithful, about suffering, about theology, about the sovereignty of God, about relationships, about how to persevere. So don't be cocky as a young, gifted Christian. Be humble. But maybe you identify more with Aquila or Priscilla as the older and you know, not hyper-talented person. Maybe you're a quiet soul and don't possess the ability to capture a large audience, you know, with your dynamic preaching or whatever. But the temptation, when you come across a powerful, young, successful Apollos who is theologically undeveloped, is to judge him or her, right? To sit back and just judge and gripe and complain to your friends and stuff like that of why this person is, you know, lacking or flawed. We may even be jealous inside of his success and feel a certain pleasure in pointing out his or her flaws. Don't do that. Instead, be humble. Come alongside the the young zealots, okay, and share the wealth of your biblical knowledge with them, not in a condescending way, but just give them what you have. If God has gifted you with a really deep understanding of the knowledge of God, then share that. Mentor uh, young wild donkeys, you know. Uh, There's many of them. They're called church planters. But there's so much in this chapter really to think about. The overall takeaway for me is the idea that the work of the ministry involves so many different kinds of people. We minister to people like the Jews who are already established in a particular worldview or the Greeks who also had an elaborate and developed system of explaining the known world. We minister to people like Titius who have a general belief and respect for God but don't have the full picture. We minister to people like Crispus who was a man of influence in his Jewish religion and his household. We minister to people like Gallio, who just kind of watch us from a distance, how we handle persecution. We minister to people who are genuinely open, but just don't convert quickly. We minister to people who are already devoted disciples uh, to, to push them into the deeper things of God. We minister to people like Apollos, 
who are talented but need theological development. Each kind of person requires a different kind of approach. And so I just want to ask you this question. Who are the people that God has called you to reach? It's probably not some abstract people on the other side of the world. I mean, it could be. But it's probably the people you work with. Some of you have big families. Your families are local. It might be your neighbor next door. And they fall into all these different categories, don't they? And so each person that you're, you're ministering to requires a different approach and a different kind of wisdom. And so let's pray right now that God would give us that wisdom. Lord, I pray even first, I pray for love for the people that you've put around us, that we would really have a heart for people. I mean, Paul modeled this so much. He just loved the Jewish people, for example. And so this is my heart's cry that they would be saved. Um, I'm in unceasing anguish and sorrow over them. I just, I, I just love them so much. I just want them to, to, to know the Lord and know the gospel. So Lord, give us that kind of heart for people. But Lord, I pray also that you'd give us wisdom to, to know how to approach different people and just how to, you know, we want it to be natural. We don't want to annoy people. We don't want to like be preaching at people and being abrasive in any, any way like that. Just, we, we, we pray that we would be gentle and good listeners and, and yet that we could engage people that are around us. Help us not to be ashamed to do that too. I know it's taboo in our culture to try to persuade people out of what they believe and into Christian doctrine. Um, That's just like an unspoken rule that we're not supposed to do that. But Lord, we have to do that because we know that all human beings will one day stand before the judgment seat of God And the only thing that saves us on that day is being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So we we love people and we, we want to push through the strain of relationships and we want to do what we can do to try to get people ready for that great judgment day. So equip us to do it. Make us fishers of men. Anoint us to do the work of the ministry. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 My voice is shot. (laughs) Thanks for listening, guys. I know it's a lot of content. Have an awesome day, and we'll see you next week in one of the small neighborhood communities. Love you.